You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the 31st episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As you'll recall, we left off last time in late December 1860 with Major Robert Anderson having just moved his small command out to Fort Sumter in the middle of Charleston Harbor. So that's where we'll start again this week. And as we return to the events transpiring at Charleston, the important thing to remember is that since Anderson believed Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island was an exceedingly vulnerable and tempting target for the secessionists, he hoped that by moving out to the more secure location of Fort Sumter, he would actually be lessening the prospect of conflict. Now that he was established at Sumter, Major Anderson hoped that, with enough time, the politicians could settle the issue without bloodshed. Well, all right, so on the morning of December 27th, when the South Carolinians discovered that Anderson had transferred the garrison from Fort Moultrie to Fort Sumter, they pretty much had a cow. What you mean to say is that they were surprised and extremely agitated. Exactly. So, when the news reached Governor Pickens, he pretty much had a cow. What you mean to say is that he was surprised and extremely agitated. Exactly. So, Pickens promptly dispatched a couple of militia officers out to Sumter to demand that Anderson return to Fort Moultrie. In a stiffly formal meeting at the fort, Anderson heard out the South Carolinians, and then he replied that his sole purpose in moving out to Sumter had been to prevent bloodshed and that he would not return to Fort Moultrie. Major Robert Anderson sympathized with the Southerners, and he was desperate to avoid confrontation, but he was a United States Army officer, and his first loyalty was to the country he had faithfully served for 35 years. And so, after the militia officers left in a huff, Anderson made a dramatic, visible demonstration of his resolve to maintain possession of Fort Sumter. In his book, Days of Defiance, Sumter, Secession, and the Coming of the Civil War, historian Mari Klein writes, quote, Anderson realized that his men needed some tangible display to certify their new position. Shortly before noon, he ordered them to form on the parade and sent the band onto the ramparts. The men and guard formed one part of a square near the flagstaff, with the workmen filling in the other sides. Anderson stood at the staff, halyard in hand, with the chaplain in the center. The chaplain thanked God for their safe arrival and prayed that the flag would never be dishonored, that it would soon float over a prosperous and united nation. Anderson rose from his knees, the men presented arms, and the band played the Star-Spangled Banner as the Major sent the flag to the top of the staff amid loud cheers. 
It was a very large flag, easily seen from Charleston on a clear day, and it flapped defiantly in the crisp winter air. End quote. We should probably point out that, as that quote just mentioned, there were still civilian workmen at Sumter, although one of the first things Anderson did was see that those laborers were divided into two groups, those who could be trusted and those who had expressed sympathy with the secessionists. Those in the former group, about 55 men, they were asked to stay on at Sumter and continue working, preparing the fort against attack. The men in the other group were removed from the fort. And then, besides the loyal workmen, there were also a number of women and children, some of the soldiers' families, who accompanied the garrison from Moultrie to Sumter. Governor Pickens was furious when he was told of Anderson's refusal to leave Fort Sumter. And so that same day, December 27th, without bothering to consult the legislature or the secession convention, Pickens made a decision that instantly transformed the already tense situation. He ordered the state's militia to seize Castle Pinckney and Fort Moultrie. As we mentioned on the last show, Castle Pinckney was located on a small island just off Charleston's waterfront, and its garrison consisted of a single old ordnance sergeant and his family. On the afternoon of the 27th, when the South Carolinians went out and took possession of Pinckney, they straightaway ran up the state's palmetto flag, and Kate Skillen, the ordnance sergeant's 15-year-old daughter, started to cry. One of the militia officers, thinking she was afraid, assured her she wouldn't be harmed. But Kate replied, quote, I'm not crying because I'm afraid. I'm crying because you have put that miserable rag up there. End quote. That evening, under the light of an almost full moon, 200 militia moved into Fort Moultrie out on Sullivan's Island. That took place without incident, as did the seizure of the Federal Armory in Charleston and broken down old Fort Johnson on James Island. Major Anderson, with his move to Sumter, had hoped to ratchet down escalating tensions by removing the vulnerable target of Fort Moultrie. But then Pickens' aggressive, emotionally charged decision to respond by seizing the other three forts in the armory had radically upped the ante and brought the nation to the brink of civil war. On December 27th, the startling news of Anderson's move to Sumter hit Washington, D.C. like a thunderbolt. When Senator Jefferson Davis of Mississippi heard the news, he and a couple of colleagues went immediately to the White House to register their protest and to try to browbeat President Buchanan into ordering Anderson back to Fort Moultrie. But even as other Southern senators arrived at the White House to pile on the pressure, something amazing happened. James Buchanan grew something of a backbone and refused to condemn Anderson until he had heard the major side of the story. Secretary of War Floyd... That treasonous... Rich... Sorry, go ahead. Secretary of War Floyd told everyone that he had telegraphed Anderson but hadn't received a reply yet. Still, the Southern senators relentlessly badgered Buchanan, warning the lame-duck president that unless he recalled Anderson to Fort Moultrie, the result would surely be war. Buchanan paced anxiously, begged his angry visitors to remain calm, but amazingly, the president refused to cave in to the Southerners' demands. A harried and hounded Buchanan summoned the cabinet into session. At that meeting, Floyd blasted Anderson and said, quote, One remedy only is left 
and that is to withdraw the garrison from the harbor of Charleston altogether. I hope the President will allow me to make that order at once. This order can alone prevent bloodshed and civil war. End quote. By all accounts, Buchanan was stunned by Floyd's suggestion. Apparently, to his credit, even in his weakest, most anxious moments, the President hadn't considered completely withdrawing from Charleston. Jeremiah Black of Pennsylvania, the Secretary of State, went absolutely incandescent when he heard Floyd's proposal, and the two men almost came to blows before Buchanan restored order. After Black read aloud Major Buell's memorandum, which seemed to indicate Anderson had been given leeway to use his own discretion in responding to any imminent attack against him, the President admitted nothing he had heard that day justified ordering Anderson back to Moultrie. As Mari Klein explains, quote, A critical corner had been turned without anyone's realizing it. Buchanan had decided nothing, nor had he conceded anything. The cautious, timid, lame duck had not moved to support Anderson, but neither had he been bullied into recalling him. End quote. Previous to all this hullabaloo, Buchanan had agreed to meet informally with those three commissioners from South Carolina the next afternoon, December 28th. But that morning, the news arrived in Washington that Pickens had seized Castle Pinckney and Fort Moultrie. This did not put the president in the best of moods before his meeting with the commissioners. Nevertheless, in a tense two-hour meeting, the three South Carolinians pressured Buchanan, declaring that now nothing less than the complete withdrawal of the federal troops from Charleston would be acceptable. Buchanan finally snapped, saying, quote, You are pressing me too importunately. You don't give me time to consider. You don't give me time to say my prayers. I always say my prayers when required to act upon any great state affair. End quote. But even that um, interesting spiritual defense didn't put off the commissioners, and so finally the president terminated the meeting. On the morning of December 29th, the day after his meeting with the commissioners, an anxious and fearful Buchanan called a cabinet meeting. Floyd wasn't present. He had finally resigned. Good riddance. General-in-Chief Winfield Scott, continually stymied by Floyd, had sent a letter directly to the president asking for permission to send a Navy ship with munitions and provisions and 250 reinforcements to Anderson at Fort Sumter. Not only Scott's proposal, but also public opinion throughout the North was coming to bear on Buchanan. The seizure of the federal forts had aroused furious protest in the North from people of every political persuasion. Even the Democratic New York Herald said that, quote, South Carolina has placed herself in open and armed hostility to the government of the United States. This is war, end quote. For James Buchanan, March 4th and Abraham Lincoln's inaugural couldn't come fast enough. The stressed and worried president longed to pass the secession problem off to Lincoln and peacefully retired to Wheatfield, his home in Pennsylvania, but he knew that now events had pushed him into a corner where he had to make a decision. Buchanan told a friend, quote, If I withdraw Anderson from Sumter, I can travel home to Wheatfield by the light of my own burning effigies. End quote. And so, under the pressure of northern public opinion, and in view of Pickens' hostile actions in seizing the other forts, Buchanan asked a go-between to inform the three commissioners that he would not withdraw Anderson from Charleston. Now keep in mind that Buchanan still believed he had no right to use force to coerce a seceding state to remain in the Union, 
but at least on this one point regarding the possession of Fort Sumter, the lame duck president had taken a stand, and from there he would not be moved. He would send reinforcements to Major Anderson in Charleston. Even before President Buchanan's decision to send reinforcements and provisions to Fort Sumter, Winfield Scott had ordered the Navy ship Brooklyn prepared for the mission. But after the President agreed to the plan, Scott decided it would be better to send a civilian steamer to Charleston. General Scott thought a civilian steamer would be faster and with its shallower draft would more easily be able to cross the bar and get into the harbor. And so a civilian steamer, a side-wheeler named Star of the West, was hired, loaded up with 200 men and 90 days provision, and she left New York Harbor on January 5, 1861. A letter was sent to Major Anderson telling him about the Star of the West mission and giving him permission to return any hostile fire against her, but unfortunately the letter would reach Anderson too late. During the first week of January, after Buchanan decided to take his stand on the matter of Fort Sumter, the governors of Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, none of which had actually seceded yet, mind you, but those states' governors nevertheless authorized their state militias to seize federal forts and arsenals in their states. A number of federal installations were thus occupied without bloodshed. On January 5th, while taking in the startling news, the President and General Scott learned that South Carolina was putting in a new battery of guns on Morris Island, overlooking the Charleston Harbor entrance. The two men promptly decided sending an unarmed civilian steamer into that situation might not be such a good idea after all, so they sent orders recalling the Star of the West, but she had already departed New York. While Robert Anderson had received no official word regarding any relief mission that had been mounted to aid him, everyone else in Charleston seemed to know all about it. That was because Secretary of the Interior, Jacob Thompson, a native of North Carolina, angrily resigned from Buchanan's cabinet on January 8th, and then he sent a telegraph to Charleston alerting the South Carolinians to the Star of the West mission. At least one Southern senator in Washington, upon learning the news, also telegraphed Charleston. And so, by the evening of the 8th, the South Carolinians knew to expect the relief ship's arrival late that night or early the next morning. In his book, Allegiance, Fort Sumter, Secession, and the Beginning of the Civil War, David Detzer tells what happened after the Star of the West, having run up the American flag, headed into Charleston Harbor on the morning of January 9, 1861. But a few things to point out before we share this passage. Cadets from the Citadel, a military academy in Charleston, were manning the cannon that South Carolina had posted in a battery at Cummings Point on Morris Island. And then the clinch is the patrol boat. So, this is from David Detzer's book, Allegiance. Quote, It was just after Reveille at the Citadel Cadets' camp. A sentry paced the beach. Through the morning's haze, he made out the clinch moving quickly, not far off. He saw it fire at signal rockets. Then he noticed the approaching star. He shouted the news to the sergeant of the guard, and the drums beat out the long roll. The infantry companies, there to protect the artillery battery, grabbed their rifles. The cadets hurried to their guns, each young man moving to his assigned position. Major Peter F. Stevens sighted his guns as best he could. Hitting a target with an artillery piece was difficult in the best of circumstances. 
hitting one moving was even more problematic. To do so successfully, with dubious gunpowder and virtually no prior practice, was hardly to be expected, but Stevens, the cadet's commander, intended to do the best he could. He aimed his first shot well in front of the star, as a warning shot. He climbed to the top of the sand wall hiding his battery, peered out at the passing merchant vessel, then softly said to the cadets behind him, Commence firing. At number one gun, the cadet captain said, Number one, fire. A young man named George Edward Hainsworth, nicknamed Tuck, pulled the lanyard. By most definitions, Hainsworth had just fired the first gun of the Civil War. End quote. When the Star of the West continued on, ignoring the warning shot, the rest of the battery on Morris Island opened fire. The ship was hit by a couple of shots, and the captain ran up the very large American flag, called a garrison flag, he had been given to hoist as a signal to Major Anderson if the star was fired upon. The large flag was raised and lowered twice as a signal of distress, but there was no reply from Fort Sumter. The star next came within range of Fort Moultrie, and the cannon there fired off a salvo at the steamer. But Sumter still stood silent, and so the star's captain reluctantly hauled down the flag, went about, and headed back out to sea. At Fort Sumter, Captain Abner Doubleday, who did not invent baseball, right, this is that Abner Doubleday, although as Tracy says, he actually didn't invent baseball, but anyway, Doubleday was the only officer on the parapet of Fort Sumter that morning. The garrison had heard a rumor, carried over from Charleston, that a civilian steamer was headed south with reinforcements for Sumter, but none of the men believed it. It made no sense. Why would the War Department send an unarmed civilian steamer on the mission instead of a naval vessel? But then, on the morning of the 9th, Doubleday saw a ship crossing the bar. Through his spyglass, he saw the South Carolina battery on Cummings Point open fire on the ship, and then he watched as the steamer ran up its huge garrison flag. Doubleday sounded the alarm, and within moments the men were rushing to their stations at the fort's guns, and other officers, including Major Anderson, stood on the parapet. Sumter actually still only had a handful of cannon mounted and ready to use, and of those, only four light guns pointed toward Morris Island, while just two big guns, 42-pounders, could reach Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island. Nevertheless, Anderson had the guns loaded, and the men stood awaiting the order to fire. But Robert Anderson hesitated. He ordered Sumter's flag run up and down as a reply to the steamer's signal, but the ropes of the fort's flagpole were snarled and couldn't be untangled quickly. Major Anderson was conflicted. He had received no official orders concerning any relief mission, but still the South Carolinians were firing on that steamer, were firing on the stars and stripes. What should he do? Should he open fire and protect the ship? And then, as Anderson and the other officers standing on the parapet at Fort Sumter watched, the embattled steamer turned around and headed back out to sea. The next day, the Charleston Mercury newspaper declared, quote, The expulsion of the steamer Star of the West from the Charleston Harbor yesterday morning was the opening of the ball of the revolution. We would not exchange or recall that blow for millions. It has wiped out a half-century of scorn and outrage. The first gun of the new struggle for independence, if struggle there is to be, has been fired, and federal power has received its first repulse. End quote.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. After consulting with his officers, Major Anderson immediately sent a strongly worded note to Governor Pickens threatening to use Sumter's guns to close the harbor to all shipping, and Pickens replied that South Carolina, as an independent republic, had the right to defend itself against aggressive incursions such as that attempted by the Star of the West. Anderson, completely isolated and not knowing that a policy had already been decided on in Washington, decided he could push the matter no further until he received clear instructions from the War Department. To that end, he asked Pickens permission to send an officer to Washington for orders. Somewhat to Anderson's surprise, Pickens readily agreed. But unknown to Anderson, the governor was actually extremely glad for the time that Fort Sumter's messenger would buy him, since just before the incident with the Star of the West, Pickens had been given word that South Carolina's military preparations so far were amateurish and utterly inadequate to repel a determined attack on Charleston Harbor, and were entirely insufficient to assault Fort Sumter. So without realizing it, Anderson's suggestion that a messenger be sent to Washington bought Pickens the time he needed for a military buildup to strengthen the harbor's defenses. Meanwhile, on January 9, 1861, the very day of the Star of the West incident, Mississippi left the Union. Florida followed suit the next day, and on the 11th, Alabama seceded. In the north, South Carolina's firing upon the Stars and Stripes cut the ground out from under those very few who were still calling for compromise of some sort with the secessionists. Across the north, blood boiled to hear that the nation's flag had been insulted. In the public's mind, Fort Sumter, more than ever, became the symbol of the ever-increasing tension over the secession crisis. In the North and South, the public's attention was focused on Charleston Harbor, but there was another drama playing out at another federal fort, this one in Florida. There at Pensacola, out at the far western corner of the Florida Panhandle, the U.S. Navy had built a large base, and to protect it, the Army had positioned four forts around the harbor. Fort Pickens, the largest of those forts, was on Santa Rosa Island, a 40-mile-long splinter of land across the harbor's outer mouth. 
In January 1861, Fort Pickens sat empty. But not for long. At Pensacola, Lieutenant Adam J. Slemmer, a slender and bespectacled officer, was in command of Company G of the 1st Artillery Regiment. Slemmer had been born in Pennsylvania and was a West Point graduate, class of 1850. David Detzer, in his book Allegiance, explains what happened at Pensacola. Quote, Lieutenant Slemmer had heard about secessionist takeovers both in Mobile, Alabama and Apalachicola, Florida, and considered transferring his command to Fort Pickens across the bay. At midnight on January 8th, a gang of about 20 men was slinking toward Slemmer's company barracks when a sentry heard them and shouted a challenge. The men kept coming and he fired a shot. Their footsteps were heard racing away. A few hours later, Slemmer received a dispatch sent by Scott on January 3rd. The lieutenant was ordered to do his utmost to prevent his forts from being seized. The next day, he and his men crossed to Fort Pickens. Two days later, a ragtag southern force arrived at the naval yard, took it, and hauled down its American flag. By his dash, by fate, Lieutenant Adam Slemmer had taken the same path as had Robert Anderson. He had withdrawn his command from a vulnerable position to a much more defensible spot on an island. From this moment on, the federal government, first Buchanan, then Lincoln, would have two key forts to deal with, both in an almost exactly the same predicament, end quote. But Fort Pickens' situation was actually a bit different, since Santa Rosa Island lay at the harbor's outer mouth and ships with reinforcements and provisions could approach the fort without interference. So there wasn't really the same sort of tension at Fort Pickens as there was at Fort Sumter. And besides that, like we said just a few moments ago, in the public's mind, Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor became the symbol of the escalating tension over the secession crisis. Nevertheless, there's one more thing we wanted to relate about Fort Pickens. On January 12th, after militia from Florida and Alabama had seized the Navy Yard there at Pensacola, four men landed out on Santa Rosa Island and demanded that Slimmer surrender Fort Pickens to the governors of Alabama and Florida. To that demand, Lieutenant Slemmer replied, I am here by authority of the President of the United States, and I do not recognize the authority of any governor to demand the surrender of United States property. A governor is nobody here. One of the Southern officers angrily asked, Do you say the governor of Florida is nobody? The governor of Alabama, nobody? To that, Slemmer answered, I know neither of them, and I mean to say that they are nothing to me. During the Civil War, Adam Slemmer would eventually rise to the rank of Brigadier General. He was commanding a battalion of regulars on the Federal left at the Battle of Stones River in Tennessee on December 31, 1862, when he was severely wounded. Slimmer stayed in the Army after the war, but he never fully recovered from his wounds, and he died in 1868 at the age of 39 while commanding Fort Laramie in the Wyoming Territory. In Washington, President Buchanan was being worn down by snowballing crises. In the same week in January 1861, the Star of the West was fired upon, the last two Southern members of Buchanan's cabinet resigned, Mississippi, Florida, and Alabama seceded, the Pensacola Navy Yard was surrendered to the secessionists, and a new flashpoint was created at Fort Pickens. 
While the president was trying to take all of that in, Robert Anderson's messenger, a sickly lieutenant named Talbot, arrived in Washington. Talbot told Buchanan that Anderson had not fired in support of the Star of the West because the order to do so had not reached him in time. Talbot also passed along Anderson's urgent request for clear directions as to the policy the government wished to pursue. Meanwhile, after Lieutenant Talbot had left Charleston, Governor Pickens had sent an ultimatum to Anderson, demanding again that Sumter be surrendered immediately. Perhaps inspired by Talbot's mission, Anderson suggested that he and the governor put a temporary truce into effect while Pickens' demand was referred to Washington. Pickens, still playing for time, agreed. And so another lieutenant from the Fort's garrison, a fellow named Hall, had set off for Washington, accompanied by South Carolina's Attorney General Isaac Hayne. Hall and Hayne arrived in Washington on January 13th. Lieutenant Hall delivered Major Anderson's official report on the Star incident and the temporary truce that he had arranged with Pickens. Anderson also reported that in his opinion, sending reinforcements was too risky, and that in any case, he didn't need them. He was secure at Sumter and had enough supplies to hold the fort as long as Washington wished to keep it. President Buchanan agreed to unofficially receive Pickens' man, Hayne, and at that meeting, Hayne agreed to return the next day and present Governor Pickens' letter. But Southern politicians from the seceding states who were still in Washington knew that Pickens' letter was essentially an ultimatum to Buchanan demanding the surrender of Sumter. And so those men sought out Hayne and urged him to withhold Pickens' provocative communication. They thought the initiation of a shooting war between the federal government and South Carolina would be premature until the seceding states had established their own southern confederacy and prepared for war with the North. They asked South Carolina to make no move against Sumter as long as Buchanan sent no reinforcements. They asked that Pickens observe this truth until at least February 15th, by which time they expected a new southern government would have been established. Hayne still hesitated to withhold the letter from Buchanan, but after he was presented with a petition signed by ten senators from states that had just seceded or were about to secede, he agreed to refer the matter back to Governor Pickens. Three of the Southern Senators then sent a copy of their proposal to the White House, seeking the lame duck president's pledge that he would make no further attempts to reinforce Sumter. There was even a suggestion that the existing truce could be extended to March 4th. For his part, Buchanan was distressed that the plan to relieve Sumter with the Star of the West had failed so dismally, and he was now keen to defuse the resulting uproar, but worried that the slightest misstep on his part might provoke war. Buchanan was tempted to accept the extension of the truce, especially since he knew that no further attempts to reinforce Sumter needed to be made, since Anderson himself had said he didn't need any more men to hold the fort and that he had an adequate store of supplies. This is where James Buchanan's appalling failure to exercise decisive leadership during the secession crisis really becomes, well, appalling. By agreeing to maintain the status quo in Charleston until he could pass the problem along to Abraham Lincoln, Buchanan bought himself, personally, some breathing space until he could leave office, but he had to know that every passing day until March 4th allowed South Carolina's forces to grow stronger, while correspondingly Anderson's position at Sumter would grow weaker. Nevertheless, as news of the truce in Charleston Harbor leaked out, an ephemeral aura of calm descended over the fractured nation's capital. 
And so the days passed. January gave way to February. Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas left the Union. In Montgomery, Alabama, representatives from the seceded states set up a new government. In the formation of this new Southern slaveholding republic, Mari Klein memorably points out that the Southern elites gathered at Montgomery engaged in, quote, the creation of a government of the right people, by the right people, for the right people, end quote. And so, no longer was the ongoing crisis merely a quarrel between South Carolina and the federal government over Fort Sumter, or between Florida and Washington over Fort Pickens. Now, in February 1861, with the creation of the Confederate States of America, a new player entered the game. And that seems like a good place to start to wrap up this episode. Next time, the crisis revolving around Fort Sumter will still be an ongoing concern for us, of course, but our main focus next week will actually be on Abraham Lincoln's journey from Illinois to Washington, D.C. in February 1861, and then his inauguration as the 16th President of the United States on March 4th. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is A Great Civil War, A Military and Political History, 1861 to 1865, by Russell F. Wegley. We realize that uh, our book recommendations tend to have a, a pretty narrow focus on a particular topic or theme or event. So we thought it might be a good idea if every once in a while we recommend a general history. And so that's what this is. A Great Civil War is one of our most favorite general histories of the war. Uh, Wegley does an excellent job of breaking down the complex history of the Civil War and helping the reader understand how all the parts, uh, military, political, economic, and social, how it all fits together. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Before we close, we wanted to thank y'all for those great five-star ratings and reviews that y'all are still putting up on iTunes. We especially wanted to say thank you to Bedford Nick, who left this five-star review on the UK iTunes site. He said, quote, I'm addicted to history podcasts, and there are many great ones, and this certainly ranks up there with the best. A warm and engaging delivery, they could narrate the phone book and I would avidly listen, is supported by great insight and opinion. A real joy. Thank you. End quote. Well, needless to say, reading that absolutely made our day. So thank you, Bedford Nick. We also want to say thank you to Spiritwood Music for giving us permission to use their beautiful song, Midnight on the Water, at the beginning and end of each episode. Their music is on iTunes and Amazon, and we hope y'all will check them out. All right. I think that's it. Yes? Yep. Okay, then. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.